We will be in Genesis chapter 15 this morning. Genesis chapter 15. So you can go ahead and start turning there. And while you're turning there, I have a brief announcement for you. Cross Purpose is a nonprofit started out of Providence Bible Church, and it's a career and community development program. We are in need of four more allies for this current class. That's a six-month commitment to walk alongside someone on their journey out of poverty. And it's a tremendous experience. I have, my wife and I have had the privilege of doing this a number of times, and we've met wonderful friends uh, through that program. And we would encourage you, uh, if you've never done this before, to do it. It will change your life. Uh, Also, next Sunday is Cross Purpose Sunday, and we just broke ground in Aurora this past week. Yes, for our fourth location last Wednesday, and we will be doing a joint service with Living Hope Church, who is the partner church for that location, here next week. And that will be an exciting service, and you don't want to miss it. Thus concludes my announcement. Uh, Can you stand while we read the word of the Lord? Genesis chapter 15, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 12 through 17. We'll be surveying this entire chapter, but I'm going to key in on this passage here. Verse 12, Genesis 15, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Uh, We have been in a series on the story of God, and specifically we've called this series the Genesis Episodes. And our intent is is to walk through the story of God over the next 60 years with you, (laughs) book by book almost. We'll do some surveys throughout uh, where we cover more ground. But at the start of this series, we want to look at Genesis. And we met together as a teaching team to choose just several of the high notes of Genesis that we think are most important for you to know and understand, to understand the overall story of God. Our desire is that uh, whenever we get through the entire story of God, you would feel like you can open your Bible and know what you're reading, how that plugs into the overall story of God. Uh, The story of God is the story of a king establishing his kingdom. So in episode one, we saw God as king commission the first humans to prepare his kingdom for his arrival. And immediately, Adam and Eve... Right out of the gates. I'm hearing some talking. That's all right. We got it under control. Immediately, right out of the gates, Adam and Eve sought to dethrone the king and put themselves on the throne. 
That was the lie they believed. And that's the lie that Satan tempted them with, that you can be like God and not just like God, you can be God. In fact, probably better and wiser than God himself. You, in fact, Adam, should be king. Don't think small thoughts of this crime that took place. Don't think of this as just somebody mistakenly choosing the wrong produce. This was not a small thing. This was high treason. Yes, they were tricked, they were deceived, but their hearts truly desired what the devil was selling, just like our hearts do today. The American message of self-actualization is just as compelling to our hearts now as the original lie was in Eden. I am the captain of my fate and the author of my destiny and identity, and no one can rule me better than I can rule myself. I am who I say I am, which sounds familiar to the way that God would describe himself later in the story to Moses. The sin in the garden wasn't just an accident. It wasn't a slip-up. It was a coup attempt. And though it failed, humanity has never given up the idea that the king should be dethroned. And yet in the middle of that, God comes to Adam and Eve tenderly and graciously and says, through your offspring, I will one day undo this curse and I will crush the head of this serpent. In the meantime, I will make provision for your nakedness and shame. And though you have chosen death instead of life, I will give you a long and full life. That first rebellion led to the downfall of humanity, or what we refer to theologically as the fall. And for generations, humankind didn't just trip and stumble and fall. They ran headlong away from their king. That was week one. Week two, Emmanuel preached on the flood and on Noah. Noah, as a second Adam, represents a restart for sinful, fallen humanity. And maybe, maybe this time, they will receive what God has given as a good and perfect gift and a commission to be fruitful and multiply. Humanity, after centuries of rejecting God and the life that he promised, finally received the natural end of their desire, which is death. But in the middle of the devastation of the flood, God chooses Noah and his family and preserves them and brings them safely through the waters. And then after the flood, Noah is given the same command as Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, live a full and flourishing life, fill the earth Prepare this place for the arrival of the king. And just like Adam and Eve, Noah ended up naked and ashamed, falling short of the destiny the king had graciously offered. And then last week, Hunter talked about the Tower of Babel, where humanity attempted once again to put themselves on God's throne, to literally build a tower to overthrow their king. And instead, their king overthrew them and scattered them into many nations. And then in the midst of that chaos and rebellion, in tenderness and kindness, God calls a man named Abram. And this is where things start to take a turn. Abram represents a major turning point in the story of God. 
So far, humanity has only passed on a heritage of curses. That's been their consistent legacy, to carry on the curse of their first parents in their stubborn, rebellious resistance of the king. But with Abram, God promises to start something utterly different. He says, Abram, through Adam, all the nations of the earth were cursed, but through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You have no children. You left your homeland to follow me, but I will give you more offspring than the stars in the sky and more land than you can fathom. In fact, Abram, I'm going to bless you so thoroughly that it will be like my blessings will flow out of you and spill onto everyone around you. Through you, Abram, I am going to begin reversing the curse that humanity is hell-bent on pursuing. Through you, Abram, I will flood the earth once again, not with water, but with my glory. And through you, Abram, and your offspring, I will take my rightful place as king. Now, if we know nothing else about this king in the story so far, if we have only gotten this far in the story of God, and we don't know everything that's to come, what do we know about God so far? What has the story revealed to us about God? What is he like so far? He's gracious. Where do you see graciousness? Yeah. Again and again, he shows grace. He preserves. He protects. He makes accommodations. What else do we see about him? He's big. He's all-powerful, and he offers amazing blessing to Abraham. Enough blessing to fill the earth, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He's big. What else? Provision. He will provide. Yes. He'll provide for his people. He'll provide a covering for their shame. He'll provide for their shortcomings. What else do we see? Patience. Incredibly patient. He told Adam and Eve, if you do this, you will die. But then he gave Adam and Eve long lives, and he waited hundreds of years before the flood. He gave humanity tons of chances. Yeah, patient. One more. Anything else? One more. Restoration. Restoration. You see him coming to restore. Yes. After the flood, go. Be fruitful, Noah. Multiply. Fill the earth. What do we see about humanity? If this is all we know is this far in the story, what do we see about humanity so far? We're self-centered. Yes. Self-centered. What else? We are made in the image of God. That's key and crucial to the story. Yes, made in his image. Ruthless? Faithless, yes. Faithless, absolutely. Redeemable, yeah, yeah. We want what we want, and we'll go after it, won't we? One more. What else do we see? One more. Pride? Yes, we are proud. We can be king. We think we can do this better than God can do this. Did you say something to us? Egotistical, the exact same thing, yeah. Yeah, we think we can do this. We think we can probably do this better than God can. Yes. 
Okay, so now we come to Abram, and as Hunter shared with us last week, God has shown up to Abram and invited him on a journey. He has said, leave your land, come and follow me. He doesn't say where he's going. He just says, to the land that I will show you. This is in chapter 12 of Genesis. Follow me. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went. This is where we first see the faith of Abram on display, and now in chapter 15, we're probably around 10 years after that initial promise. What was the promise? What did God come to Abram and promise him? Land and descendants, yes. I will give you land. You can leave your land because I will give you land and I will give you descendants. He's 75 years old when the promise is made. So now he's probably around 85 in chapter 15. It's been 10 years. He has no descendants and he has no land. Generally speaking, if somebody were to come to you and you were looking for a job and they said, I have a job for you, I'm going to give you a job. And you said, great. And then they just left. You would probably assume they meant tomorrow or a couple of weeks they would have a job for me. You wouldn't be hanging on to that for 10 years, right? You wouldn't be sitting at home thinking, okay, John Hyde said that I have a job. He's got a job for me. I'm going to wait and just wait here for it. That's, not, that's just not how we tend to think of time and promise, is it? When somebody makes a promise to us, we have a very short window of time where we expect that promise to be fulfilled. And so now it's 10 years, and Abram is struggling. He's struggling with this. And we see it in the very beginning of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Why would he tell him to fear not? Because he's afraid. When does Jesus say to his disciples, don't be afraid? When they're afraid. He doesn't say it to them when they're not afraid. He says it to them when they're terrified. Don't be afraid. Abram, listen, don't be afraid. I am your shield and your reward will be very great. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He's chosen somebody in his household to be his heir who is not his son. And he's thinking, it's been 10 years. This promise is not going to be fulfilled. I'm getting too old to have children. My wife is getting too old, is too old to have children. This isn't going to happen. God, what are you going to give me? You said that you would give me offspring. What are you going to give me? Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So in this story, so far that we've seen just in the life of Abram, this king is a king who makes promises. He makes promises. And when his subjects, his people, believe those promises, it is counted to them as righteousness. Abram believed him. This is the second time where we see Abram believing God very clearly, believing him. 
but almost immediately he starts doubting. So the first thing we see is the king, this king makes promises. The second thing we see is that Abram has faith and doubts. He has faith and it's counted to him as righteousness. And in the same breath, the same prayer, Abram is still doubting. Look at this, verse 7. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now remember, Abram has no land yet. (laughs) So Abram says the logical thing, but O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And so then God, for the rest of this chapter, is going to go through a process of giving Abram certainty in the midst of his doubt. You can be certain Abram, that I'm going to give you what what I have promised to give you. So we know that Abram has faith, and he's he's, uh, lauded for his faith. We also know that he has doubts. How will I know that you're going to do this? How do I know? I believe. I believe you. But it's been 10 years. When? When is this going to happen? God never answers that question. In fact, in the midst of this passage where he's He's reassuring Abram that he's going to deliver on this promise. He doesn't speak in terms of 24-hour periods. He doesn't say, next week, your wife will conceive. He says, Abram, I want you to take a step back, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen over the next 400 years of this promise. God clearly doesn't operate on our time frame. Even after this passage where God is assuring Abram and giving him certainty of the promise, Abram waits longer than he's waited so far. He waits another 15 years or so before his wife conceives. And in the middle of that, we see that Abram is still doubting. Of course he is. He's human, just like we are, and starts taking things into his own hands and trying to figure out other ways to have an heir Abram had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness, but it was an imperfect faith. It was imperfect. This should give us great hope. I went to bed last night needing this text to be true, and I woke up this morning needing this text to be true, and I stand in front of you this morning needing this text to be true, and I am believing it, though I'm preaching it, I am believing it imperfectly. Just like every sermon I've ever preached, I'm preaching things that I'm endeavoring to believe and endeavoring to build my life on, and I doubt. I doubt. Three o'clock in the morning, I can doubt the promises of God. 11.17 in the morning, I can doubt the promises of God. Can you? Can you relate to Abram in this story? He's not a superhero. I think I grew up idolizing people in the Bible as heroes and considering and hearing Abraham or Abram, as he's known so far, called a hero of the faith. But if you read his story, he's not very heroic. He's actually very human. He's he's as human as I am. And his desire to take things out of God's hands and into his own hands sounds a lot like my own journey of faith. In fact, I'm tempted this morning to do what they were doing last week in the Tower of Babel and dethrone God. You know how I do that? I do that by worrying and doubting his promises. At the core of my doubt of the promises of God is a belief that God is not trustworthy 
and he doesn't keep his promises as good as I do. That's what's at the core of my worries. I am more dependable than he is. I would never say it. I would never admit that unless I'm standing in front of a room of people. (laughs) But that's what's at the core of my doubt and worry. We can relate to this. We can relate to this story. I want you to think of a big problem that you have right now, because we're going to see next that not only does this king make promises, not only does Abraham have faith and doubts just like we do, but then this king goes further than just a promise, and he makes a covenant. He signs a contract, so to speak. So before we get into that, I want you to just picture the biggest, some of the biggest problems you're facing in your life right now. And I'm not going to ask you to share them. Don't worry. I'm not going to break you up into groups of three and have you share your biggest problems with each other. Though I hope that you do have space to share those with community genuinely, I hope that you're in a community group or you're in a community of believers where you can share those problems and pray through those problems. But I want you to identify, just take a moment and identify in your mind some of the big problems that you're facing in your life right now. And I just want to play a really silly scenario with you, okay? I want you to imagine, once you've identified the problem, that tomorrow... The president of the United States comes to your house. It just happens to be Joe Biden, but you can pick any president you want to. The president of the United States shows up at your house, and he says, I want to talk to you about that problem, whatever the problem is that's in your mind. And he says to you, I have come with a contract, just a one-pager, easy to read. I promise in this contract that I have already signed for you that I am going to bring all of the resources at my disposal to help you solve that problem. So all of the resources that I have at my disposal as the president of the United States of America, whether it's a financial problem or any other type of problem, I'm going to assemble a team and we will help you. I will dedicate myself to helping you solve that problem. And he slides the contract across the table for you to see that he has signed it. Whatever the problem is in your mind, would that, least, would that at least make you feel a little bit better? <laughs> like, okay, I may not be, he says, oh yeah, I may not be able to fix this, but surely, surely somebody like a president can assemble a team of whatever it is, financial experts, the best doctors in the country, the best counselors, I don't know, in the country. I don't know what the problem is, but whatever the problem is, surely he has the resources, more resources than I do. Surely he has the resources to help me meet this need. Now, if you're realistic, you also know that he's a politician and the contract is probably not trustworthy, but it would at least for a moment, I would bet, make you feel a little bit better that somebody with a lot more power than you have is willing to help you solve that problem, wouldn't it? This is exactly, almost exactly what God is doing with Abram. Abram, I know that you're afraid that I'm not going to deliver on this promise. But I'm thinking of the big picture here. I'm thinking long term. And I am going to give you a son, an heir from you. Literally, I'm going to deliver on that promise. And I am going to give you land, but just not right now. You're going to have to wait. But as a sign that I am trustworthy and you can depend on this promise, I am going to sign a contract with you. And this process that God walks through with Abram is this culture's form of signing a contract. They did not have DocuSign. They didn't have paper yet. This is a contract that God is about to sign with Abram. 
And here's what he does in verse 12. Actually, I'm going to back up a little bit. Remember the question that Abram just asked, verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? This is God's answer to the question, how am I to know? How am I going to know that you're good for your word? God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. You'll notice in the story that this seems entirely normal to Abram. He, he knows what this means. God doesn't tell him to cut anything in half, at least not that we can see. God just says, start bringing me these things. And immediately, Abram is responding in the way that we would in the imaginary scenario of the president. If he's like, I've, I've brought some attorneys here. We're going to sign some paperwork. Abram brings him these animals, but immediately cuts them in half because he knows this is a covenant. We're about to go through a covenant together. And a covenant like this, when they cut the pieces of the animal in half, both parties would walk through the pieces of animal together, signifying as you're walking through a dead heifer and all these other dead animals, you're walking through them together, you're reminded of blood and gore, you're seeing this, and you're signifying together that if I don't live up to my end of this contract or this covenant, may I be ripped to pieces like these animals? And if you don't live up to this covenant, may you be ripped to pieces like these animals. Now, how would that feel if that contract with the president had that clause? If you don't deliver, may you be ripped to pieces. That puts some teeth in the contract, wouldn't it? But this was the understanding. This was the symbolism that they were, as they were walking through, I'm so serious that if I don't live up to my end of this deal, may I be ripped apart just like these animals. And if you fail to live up to your end, may you be ripped apart. This chapter and this, uh, this section of this chapter, for me, has become just the cornerstone of my faith in the promises of God. And I hope that after this sermon, it will be that for you too. Because when Abram said, how can I be certain? God says, this is how. This is how. Look what God does as they proceed with this contract. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain. Abram, you want to know how you can know? You can know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. And he goes on. We already read this text, so for time, I'm going to move to the end. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. We can stop there. This fire pot and torch, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. This, this is the uh, symbolization of God himself walking through these pieces. Who's missing? Abram is missing. Abram is sound asleep. And God is walking through the pieces of animals. What is God saying when he does this? He's answering Abram's question. How can I know for sure that you're faithful to your word? How can I know this for sure? And God does this. God goes through this covenantal ceremony. And what he signifies by doing this is, Abram, if I fail to deliver, may I be ripped to pieces. And Abram, if you fail to deliver, if your faith fails, 
if you fail in sin, if you turn your back on me, may I be ripped to pieces. This is a unilateral contract. This is God saying, it all rests on me, Abram. It is not up to you. It's not up to your fickle faith. You've already been counted righteous for the little faith that you did have. This is on me. This is on me. How can you be certain? Because it's not up to you. If it was up to you, you could not be certain because you have not been able to produce an heir. You could not be certain because where are your lands? If it was up to you, you would already be lost and without hope. The way you can be certain, the way you can know for certain is that all of this hangs on me. And if I fail to deliver, may I be ripped to pieces. And if you fail, may I be ripped to pieces. The reason we chose this chapter as so important to understand the overall story of God is that we are going to see this play out over and over and over again throughout Scripture, and God is going to continually remind his people of this promise. The descendants and offspring of Abraham are going to forget it over and over and over again, and God is going to continually remind them, I made a covenant. I signed my life away. I have made a blood oath with you. I will deliver. I will keep my promises. We're going to fast forward now because this story, all the way at the beginning of the story, helps us then make sense of some things that we hear repeated in the New Testament. If we go to Galatians chapter 3, and there are many texts like this that we could look at, but Galatians chapter 3, we see the fulfillment of this contract. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Paul is now writing to the church. This is thousands of years later. Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and he is saying to them, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Throughout the story, God is going to remind us, remind humanity of the curse that we are under, that we have chosen for ourselves. And this curse shows up in all kinds of ways, from the way we treat each other, from interacting or touching dead bodies. I mean, all of these things. The law that God is going to give Moses shows what, how heavy and far-reaching this curse is. It touches everything. And in fact, the law says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so at Calvary, as Jesus goes to the cross, he is not just dying he is taking on generations of curses against humanity that humanity has chosen over against the rightful king, God, and his blessing. He is taking our curse on himself. That's what Paul is referring to. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul is reaching all the way back to Genesis, and he's saying this Jesus who was crucified fulfilled the covenant that God made with Abraham. And now it's not just to Abraham and to his offspring, it's to all the nations of the earth. Jesus fulfilled the contract not just for Abraham, 
but for the Gentiles, for everybody. God promised Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Paul says, in Jesus, that promise has been fulfilled. And so now you and I can look at the promises of God with certainty, with certainty. It is behind us. The fulfillment of this contract has taken place. It is a sure thing. Christianity is unique among all the world's religions in this. This idea that this king would get ripped to pieces. Christianity is unique. All the other religions will say it's up to you. In some way or another, it is up to you. The world is a mess. Your life is a mess. It's up to you. You'd better work really hard to turn things around, clean yourself up, start following the rules, and when you fail, try harder. Only Christianity says that the world is a mess and God, the king, has taken it upon himself. He's king. He will make things right. He has taken personal responsibility for our brokenness and he has died the death that we chose for ourselves. He has promised life for us and he was torn to pieces so that you and I could be whole. And so that we could know for certain that he will keep every promise he has ever made. In fact, scripture is going to say in Jesus, all of the promises that we read about God in scripture are yes. They're yes to us. We can bank our lives on these promises because of the cross. Though we turned against him and though we ourselves wanted to be king, he will always be for us. And though we abandoned him, he will never abandon us. And though we chose the curse, he has swallowed the curse on our behalf and made us a blessing to the nations. Because God was ripped to pieces, your faith in his promises can be certain. In fact, Paul is going to say in Romans 8.32, just think about the covenant And think about the fulfillment of the covenant, the only begotten Son of God. John the Baptist introduces him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's naked and ashamed publicly, or at least shamed. He wasn't personally ashamed, but he's publicly shamed and hanging on a cross as a very visible uh, personification of the curse, taking it on himself. And Paul writes, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, how is there any promise that he will not deliver? How will he fail? If he went all the way to giving up his own son, how will he fail to keep any of his promises? How will he fail to give you anything that you need if he would go this far for you? You can know for certain. That's what God says to Abram in 15, chapter 15 of Genesis. You can know for certain. So where does the rubber meet the road for us? Well, where in your life are you struggling to believe the promises of God right now? Maybe like me, you were struggling to believe the promises of God last night. Maybe right now in your seat, you're struggling to believe the promises of God. 
We prayed for Lon and Val, and Lon called me last night and asked for prayer and asked for our congregation to pray for Val, and Val was texting me last night, and I hope they're still watching, but I would understand, Val, if right now you find yourself wondering if you can trust in the promises of God. What is it? What is it that makes you doubt? Maybe you're struggling to believe the promise that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's a promise that's yours in Scripture. In fact, this is how I want to read my Bible, is when I'm reading my Bible, I'm not just looking, Joseph said this in our morning meeting, but I'm not just reading my Bible to learn a lot of facts about God. I'm reading my Bible to find promises that I can bank on, promises that I can hope in, promises that I can answer my fears with. And here's a promise. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Sit there in that text and behold him, your God, walking through the pieces. And then behold him on the cross as he's torn apart to keep this promise. Do you think he would go that far to only break his promise to provide for you? Because he was ripped to pieces, you can know for certain that he will keep that promise. Or maybe you're struggling to believe the promise that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. That's a promise. It is yes to you in Jesus. No condemnation, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know how far I've fallen. You don't know how many times I've given into temptation. Can I really be certain that there's no condemnation? Yes, you can know for certain that there will be no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're feeling alone and abandoned. Maybe it feels like the world has turned its back on you, and you wonder if God has too. Maybe you're struggling to believe the promise that he will never leave you or forsake you. Look to the cross. And more than that, look to the empty tomb. Your king went all the way to death for you and came out victorious on the other side so that even death itself cannot separate you from him. You can know for certain. There's a promise that's hard to believe sometimes that he actually loves us. Do you ever feel like you don't deserve to be loved? Maybe you've been told that by someone in your life. Maybe your parents communicated that to you. Maybe a spouse or a child or a friend told you by words or actions, nobody will love you. And you hear the Bible say things like, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the sons and daughters of God, and so we are. It's a promise, and you hear it, and you find yourself wondering, yeah, but can I be certain? And like Abram, you have faith. You believe You believe what the Bible tells you about God and about Jesus and the gospel. You believe, but can I really be certain in this place? Can I really be certain? Yes. Yes. You can absolutely be certain. You can be more certain that God loves you than you can be about many of the other things you feel pretty certain about. You feel pretty certain about how the rest of this day is going to go for you. You feel pretty certain about what's going to happen after this service. You're probably going to eat something you may not have decided on what yet, but you're probably going to eat again today. You will probably end up in a warm bed at some point tonight. You probably feel pretty certain about those things. You can have more certainty because you don't know what tomorrow holds and you don't know what the next hour holds for you. You can be more certain that the Father in heaven loves you. Nobody has died to prove to you that you'll get lunch today. Nobody has. 
You can be certain that he loves you while you look forward to a hopefully wonderful lunch. He delivers. He delivers. He keeps his promises. This king is trustworthy. He was ripped to pieces. And because of that, your faith in his promises can be certain. Not hopeful, not foolishly optimistic, certain. You can be certain that in Christ you're deeply loved and treasured and you are a son or a daughter of the king. Or lastly, maybe you feel separated from him this morning. Maybe you feel like sin or sickness or peril or hardship has cut you off from his love or his care or his sight. Maybe you feel unseen. Maybe you're struggling and feeling alone, neglected. Romans 8.35 says nothing Here's the list that he means by nothing. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not danger, not sword, not death, not life, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come, not powers, not height, not depth, nor anything else in all creation, which includes anything you could possibly be struggling with right now. Whatever you thought of when I asked you to think about the biggest problems you're facing, nothing Nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. So while you may not be certain of how this is going to turn out for you, however this problem is going to turn out for you, you can be certain of one core reality. The truest thing for you is that the God who made you, your king, loves you. He loves you, and he will never abandon you. This is our king, Providence. May we gladly join together to bring all of our lives into the light of his good, kind, benevolent reign. And tomorrow, when like me and like Abram, you find yourself doubting again. And you're like, can I, yeah, but can I be certain? Yeah, but how will I, I know, but how will I know, no? How will I know? May you go here, not here, may you go here, into his word and read his promises and find hope from the promises that he will never fail to keep for you. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. You're kind. Your mercy and grace flows from generation to generation to generation. You truly are patient with us and you love us. Father, you're patient with our frail faith And oftentimes we find ourselves like the man in the Gospels who came to Jesus and said, yes, I believe, but I need you to help my unbelief. Father, may your spirit meet us this morning as imperfect believers who want to build our lives on your promises. We want to believe that you will fulfill your promises. Help our unbelief this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.